0: 1 Samuel chapter 30, beginning in verse 21. And David came to the 200 men, which were so faint that they could not follow David, when they had made also to abide at the brook Besor. And they went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with him. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them. Then answered all the wicked men, and men of Belial, of those that went with David, and said, Because they went not with us, we will not give them aught of the spoil that we have recovered, save to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Then said David, Ye shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord hath given us, who hath preserved us and delivered the company that came against us into our hand, For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part alike. And it was so from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel unto this day. And when David came to Ziklag, he sent of the spoil unto the elders of Judah, even to his friends, saying, Behold the present for you of the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. To them which were in Bethel, and to them which were in South Ramoth, and to them which were in Jatter, and to them which were in Auror, and to them which were in Sifmoth, and to them which were in Eshtimoah, and to them which were in Rachel, and to them which were in the cities of, of the Jehermeelites, and to them which were in the cities of the Kenites, and to them which were in Horma, and to them which were in Korashan, and to them which were in Athak, and to them which were in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were wont to haunt. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. In verse 24, from this portion we've read, we find David announcing a precept, a law, if you will, an executive decree. As his part is that goeth down to the battle, So shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part, or as other versions render it, they shall share alike. This was not merely a temporary statute then for the immediate situation. Verse 25 makes it plain that this was a matter that David held with conviction a conviction that ran so deep in his heart that he would enact it as a permanent statute in Israel. Look at it again, verse 25. And it was so from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel unto this day. I think these verses indicate to us that David had learned a very important and practical lesson from his experience in Ziklag. You will recall, if you know the story of David, that David had fled into the land of the Philistines in his attempt to escape from King Saul He reasoned with himself. His faith pretty much collapsed, and he reasoned to himself, well, if I go take refuge in the land of the Philistines, then Saul will leave me alone. And so we find David abiding in the city of Ziklag, a city that was given to him by the Philistine ruler, and he does take refuge in that city, if I'm not mistaken, for a period of about a year and a half some 18 months. You'll recall if you know the story that David and his men were about to join up with the Philistine armies in their campaign against Israel. The Philistine lord, seeing the potential danger to having David and his men in their ranks, instead sent them home to Ziklag, which had become David's city during the time of his exile. Upon arriving in Ziklag some three days later, David and his men discovered that the city had been plundered and burned to the ground. The Amalekites were seeking to avenge themselves of David because of his raids against them. Interesting that in the narrative, when we read the account of that Egyptian slave that was left by his master to die, verse 13, that slave recounts the many raids that this band of Amalekites had launched under their current campaign. We made an invasion upon the south of the Cherethites, that slave says in verse 14, and upon the coast which belongeth to Judah, and upon the south of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Now, Take note, Ziklag was the only city that this slave mentioned that they not only plundered, but they burned it to the ground. They burned Ziklag with fire. The other cities were invaded, but only Ziklag, only David's city of exile, was actually burned. And I think the reason for that is probably obvious. They knew or they learned that this was David's city. When they invaded David's city of exile, they found the city left unguarded. No one was there. David and his men had left the city to join the Philistines at that time. You recall from our earlier reading that when David and his men arrived back at Ziklag and discovered what had happened, they wept until they had no more power to weep. And then their sadness turned into anger, and David's men spoke of stoning David. They were holding him responsible for their misfortune, And at that very time, David had reason to be most discouraged. We read an incredible statement about him, and this is one that I love to contemplate. Uh, Whenever I'm discouraged, whenever you're discouraged, you should resort to verse 6 when it says, But David encouraged, or it can be rendered, David strengthened himself, In the Lord his God. At the very time when he was at the lowest of lows, in the deepest valley that he'd ever been in, he was able, nevertheless, to encourage himself in the Lord. And the thing I love about that verse is it shows you that there's no such thing as being so far out of bounds that you can't encourage yourself in the Lord. And that's what David did. Armed with that strength, as well as the promise from the Lord that they would, without fail, recover all, David and his men pursue hard after that Amalekite band. It's hard to gauge exactly just how much of a head start that Amalekite band had over David and his men, We do know that it took David three days to return to Ziklag after being dismissed by the Philistine lords. We also know that the Egyptian slave that David's men found had been in the desert for three days and three nights. Verse 12. I think it's fair to say that it probably took David and his men the better part of a week from the time the city had been burned To catch up with that band of Amalekites. David and his men then would have pressed hard, and they would have pressed long. May very well be that they endured some all night marches in order to gain on the band that had plundered their homes. They pressed so hard and so long that by the time they reached the brook that is called the Brook Besor. 200 of David's men, a third of his army, couldn't go any further. They were that exhausted. They stayed behind. They were so faint, verse 10 tells us, that they could not go over the brook Besor. David and the remaining 400 men caught up to the Amalekite raiding band and caught them completely off guard. David smote them from the twilight even until the evening of the next day, according to verse 17. And then verse 18 tells us, There was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoiled nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. And then a problem arose. As they began to return home, they came upon those 200 men that were so faint that they couldn't continue. They weren't a part of the the army that succeeded in recovering all. These men, these 200, went forward to meet David upon his return and were told in verse 21 that David saluted them. But then a constituency of David's men that are labeled in verse 22 as wicked men and men of Belial put forth the notion that these 200 that could not go the whole distance in the recovery invasion should not share in the spoil that David and the others had gained. They would be given their wives and their children, but then they would be sent away if these men of Belial had their way. But it's at this point that David intervenes. He draws a line in the sand, so to speak, by saying in verse 22, Who will hearken unto you in this matter? David would have no part in what he viewed to be such a treacherous scheme And it's in this setting that David lays down the precept that would become a permanent statute in Israel. As his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff, they shall part alike. Verse 24. If we pay attention to the teachings of Christ, and to the teachings of the apostles in the New Testament, I think we could say there is a sense in which David's precept is binding upon Christians in our age as well. Christ himself summarized this precept very succinctly in Matthew 10. In that chapter, Christ is sending forth his disciples to preach the kingdom of heaven, Like David's men in 1 Samuel 30, Christ's disciples had gained much, spiritually speaking. They would be the recipients of Christ's salvation. They were to be the messengers of that same salvation. As he sends them forth, Christ says to them in Matthew 10 and verse 8, Freely ye have received, freely give. If you look at that statement from Christ and compare it to David's precept or statute back in 1 Samuel 30 and verse 24, I think we can encapsulate both statements by very simply saying, the Christian must share what he's gained. That's what those um, Israelites who had partaken of the battle we called upon to do. You will share of the spoil with those who stayed by the stuff, with those who were too exhausted to go any further. The Christian must share what he's gained. That was David's precept, his permanent precept. And as I say, it applies as well to the Christian in this day and age. And in the remaining moments of the meeting this morning, I want to analyze that precept of David by saying, first of all, the precept prescribes to us the practice of sharing. The precept prescribes to us the practice of sharing. The last five verses of this chapter are devoted to elaborating on the way David put his own precept into practice. I won't read all the verses, but look at uh, a couple of them again. Verse 26. And when David came to Ziklag, he sent of the spoil unto the elders of Judah, even to his friend, saying, Behold a present for you of the spoil of the enemies of the Lord to them which were in Bethel, and to them which were in South Ramoth, and to them which were in Jatir, etc., etc. It enumerates them all. And David sent part of his spoil uh, to all of them. Such a practice, you know, has always characterized the people of God. In the book of Acts, the early church was marked as a church That gave. They were a giving church. Those early Christians were very conscious of how rich they were spiritually. They knew that everlasting life was their portion, that heaven was their home. They were convinced of this because they knew that Christ was risen from the dead. So we read in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things common. Two verses later we read, Neither was there any among them that lacked for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the riches of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Now, I'm not about to suggest, as some have, that that text sets forth the idea of Christian communism. Some have taken that position. It merely points out that those early Christians were aware that they were spiritually rich. And because of that, the things of this world meant little or nothing to them in comparison to the benefits of salvation that they had gained in Christ. They were willing to part with the temporal things they had on the basis of the needs of others because of what they had gained spiritually By Jesus Christ. There's a verse in Acts chapter 3, verse 6, that I've really come to love down through the years, because it indicates to us that the kind of sharing that was preeminent among the apostles was not the sharing of money. Silver and gold have I none. Peter says to the lame man who begged for alms outside the gate of the temple. Kind of shows you, doesn't it, that there wasn't any great financial benefit to being an apostle in the early church. It wasn't until Christianity became thoroughly corrupted with the rise of popes and cardinals and bishops that being a church leader meant being rich. The riches that Peter and John shared, and indeed the riches that you and I possess and should share, are of a much greater value than anything we could possess in this present world. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, Peter says to that lame beggar. You know the story. He lifted him by the hand, he sprang to his feet, and he went into the temple, leaping, jumping and leaping and dancing, as it were, and praising God. In a sense, spiritually speaking, this is what you and I offer. The gospel of Christ that spiritually heals and that imparts life where before there was spiritual death. We share a gospel that can put a sinner back on his feet with a renewed sense of purpose and meaning in life. I'm reminded just now of something that took place at camp. They did their usual Sunday night minister's panel where all the ministers have to sit on the stage and field questions that have been submitted in advance, at least in advance to Dr. Pollock. And one of the questions that was asked this last time was for each of the ministers to recall his most embarrassing moment connected with camp. Boy, I had to strain for that one. But, and I remember it very vividly, there was a time on our way to camp, uh, Gray Road Baptist Church, my son's church, had lent us their van They gave me the key, and they gave me an extra key, which was on a lanyard. And as we drove out, I had taken that extra key on the lanyard and simply dropped it in a cup holder. Well, we were making good time, but I felt it was time for a break. We stopped at a rest stop. I let everybody out. They shut the doors behind them. I took a five-minute power nap, so to speak. And then I got out of the car, Uh, locked it, shut the door, locked myself out, locked everybody out. The key was still in the ignition. Uh, That extra key was still in the cup holder. So two keys, and I still managed to lock us out. We had to call a locksmith, which fortunately we were able to contact. Probably cost us an hour of time or a little more, but eventually it, it was unlocked. But the thing that I remember even more vividly than that embarrassing moment was a man that we met at that rest stop. He was an older fella. His health had been destroyed by alcohol and tobacco. He'd lost his voice. He had one of those implants in his throat that he had to press just to talk. And he kind of hobbled and walked slow. He was old, maybe slightly hunched over. You could tell he was up in years but the man had only recently gotten saved and he was so happy to what i remember about him you know he had lost so much lost his health lost whatever job he had i suppose but he had found christ and he was happy to talk to us about christ and he was happy that he had a job We might look upon that job and say, what a menial job. He's He's a janitor in a rest stop off the interstate. The man was so happy to have a job and did his job as unto the Lord. And I, I raise him up now as an example of one who has found great riches by finding Christ. What an impact the gospel had on him. He reminds me of that beggar outside the temple who was pulled up to his feet and went into the temple just filled with the joy of salvation. Well, that was that man at that rest stop, too. One of the most challenging verses, I think, in all the New Testament is found in John's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 12. This is Christ speaking. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. Well, think about that for a moment. What kind of works did Christ do? He performed miracles. He healed those that were blind. He gave hearing to those that were deaf. He ministered deliverance to those who were enslaved by the devil. He raised dead souls back to life. Are these the works that we're to do? Are we to do greater works, to use Christ's phrase, greater works than those? Well, the thing you have to keep in mind here is that this is Christ's word, not mine. And the way such works are performed, quite simply, is by sharing what we've gained You've gained sight through the gospel. You've gained that kind of spiritual hearing that enables you to detect the Spirit of God speaking to you through the Word of God. You've gained life. You've been resurrected from spiritual death. These are things that we've gained, and these are things that we can give. This is why, and I think this is worth making a point of emphasis, there is no such thing as a Christian who has nothing to give. He may not have much in terms of monetary wealth. Most Christians don't. The Apostle Peter didn't. Silver and gold have I none, he told the lame beggar but we have things to give that are much more valuable. We have salvation. And just as we freely received it, so are we to freely give it. We're to spread it far and wide. So David's precept prescribes to us the practice of giving or sharing. It's important that the Christian view the precept right. It's possible, you see, and sometimes it does happen, probably too often. It is possible to give and yet have it count for nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing, 1 Corinthians thirteen three. Paul is teaching us in that verse that it is possible for a Christian to give completely and to give sacrificially and still have it count for nothing. It becomes very important, therefore, for the Christian to know not just what this precept prescribes, but also what this precept presupposes. And that leads to my next point of analysis of David's precept which is this, the precept presupposes a right view of God. A right view of God. David and his men had just accomplished a spectacular feat. They had caught up to the raiding party of the Amalekites and smote them from twilight until evening of the next day. They had recovered everything and gained much more besides. Each one had gained his spouse and his sons and daughters. That was incredible victory, given the circumstances in which it was gained. David had the sense, though, to see what many of his men could not see. David saw the hand of God in this highly unusual and unlikely battle. Notice his rebuttal to the sons of Belial in verse 23. Then said David, "Ye shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord hath given us, who hath preserved us, and delivered the company that came against us into our land. Do you see how David saw God as the provider of his people? The Lord hath given this to us, he says, David saw that the Lord was the protector of his people. He's preserved us, he says in the same verse. He saw God as the one that gave the victory. It was the Lord that delivered the company that came against us into our hand. Do you begin to see David's view of God now, admittedly, David's view of God had been obscured for quite some time during his time in exile. Indeed, the reason David went into exile in the first place was because of a loss of confidence in his God. But when David encouraged himself in the Lord his God, his vision of a Savior's power and might was renewed, and so he saw Christ as the source From whom all blessings flow. He saw Christ as his high tower and as his place of refuge. He saw Christ as the giver of the victory. We're called upon to see Christ the same way, he's the source of every blessing we enjoy. James one seventeen every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of Lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He's the one who protects and preserves us. He's the one who stands with us as he stood with Paul when all others deserted him. He's the one who gives the victory. So we read in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 57, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we would practice the precept of sharing, therefore, we must practice it from the proper motivation. We don't give or share in order to earn something from God. But we give because God has bestowed on us the unspeakable gift of his Son. But not only does the precept presuppose a right view of God's person, but it also presupposes a right view of God's people. There were 200 men that went with David until it was physically impossible for them to go any further. We sometimes have the mistaken notion, as the sons of Belial did, that there is sin involved in our own limitations. David knew better. This is why he saluted those 200 men who came to greet him upon his return from the battle. I like the way Young's literal version puts this. It says in that version that David asked of them of their welfare. little more to that than simply David saluting them. He greeted them. He asked of their welfare. David, you see, knew what they had been through. He knew their desire. He knew that even though they could no longer pursue, they were with David and his men in spirit. He also knew that even in their weakness, they had nevertheless played an important part in enabling the others to press on with the battle. Do you see how they're described in verse 24 as the ones who tarried by the stuff? They stayed by the baggage. I said in my introduction that David had learned a practical lesson from the Ziklag trauma. He learned that you don't leave your possessions unguarded. These men who were too weak to pursue were not so weak that they couldn't watch over all that needed to be carried on this journey. And through their willingness to stand guard over the baggage, they lightened the load of those who still had the strength to press on. How much less would they have brought back of the spoils of the battle had each man been burdened with that which he had to carry for himself on his own journey. And so David, you could say, recognized something of the thing that Paul elaborates in 1 Corinthians 12, that there is one body with many members The body is not one member, but many. He says in verse 14, If the foot shall say, Because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, Because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased them. There is unity and yet diversity within the body of Christ. And just as there are different functions, there are also varying degrees of strength given by God in order to serve those functions. The thing we must note from the merit, from the narrative is that the entire band of David's army was involved in the battle. They didn't all share the same function, but they did all serve in some capacity. And from the picture presented to us in this narrative we may draw the application that there is a place of service for you in the cause of Christ's kingdom. You may not be as strong as others or as gifted as others when it comes to your particular service. Don't make the mistake of thinking that because you're not gifted in a way others are gifted, there is no place for you in the service of Christ. There is a place. Not only is there a place, but it's a vital place. It's incumbent upon you that you seek that place and that you serve in that place faithfully. The Apostle Paul elaborates on this in Romans chapter 12. If you would care to turn up that chapter, let me read a couple of verses from it. Romans chapter 12 etcetera, etc. Cetera. Varying gifts that the Lord gives. I like the point that Alexander McLaren makes on his analysis of first Samuel thirty and verse twenty four. One of the points in his sermon outline is that all work done from the same motive will receive the same reward. The Lord doesn't expect you to be something you're not, nor does he expect you to do something you cannot do. But he does expect you to be faithful in what he's equipped you to do. And so you must humbly and gratefully find your place of service and perform it with all your heart as unto the Lord. The precept presupposes a right view of God's person, then, as well as a right view of God's people. Could I say under this heading also that the precept presupposes a right view of God's purpose? I've already mentioned the last five verses of 1 Samuel 30 that describe in some detail the various places to which David sent portions of the spoil by his action David not only shows us a right view of God's person and God's people, but a right view also of God's purpose. If I could put it to you simply, God gives to us that we may in turn give to others. A common mistake that I suppose we all fall into because of inbred sin and a selfish, sinful nature is the mistake of thinking that God's blessings were meant to terminate on us. Oh, what a proud and arrogant attitude we manifest when we think that way. That kind of thinking is what characterizes fallen man. The sinner, you see, is governed by the attitude that the world should revolve around him. And when God bestows blessings upon the sinner, he reasons in his heart that he's entitled to the blessings that God gives him. Nothing could be more arrogant or more erroneous. It demonstrates a wrong view of God, a wrong view of God's people, and a wrong view of God's purpose. And this leads to my final consideration of our study. We've seen that David's precept prescribes to us the practice of sharing what we've gained. We've seen that in order to practice the precept right, we must understand the presuppositions of the precept, which are our right understanding of God's person and his people and his purpose. Let's consider finally, That the precept, this Davidic precept, parts us from the sons of Belial. They mark us out as distinct, they divide us from the sons of Belial. Look at verse 22, if you would. Then answered all the wicked men and men of Belial. Of those that went with David, and said, Because they went not with us, we will not give them aught of the spoil that we have recovered, save to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. So here are the sons of Belial, mentioned in verse 22. The word Belial is a word that means worthless. The term is mentioned earlier in 1 Samuel as a term to describe the sons of Eli. It is said of them, back in chapter 2, verse 12, that they were the sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. The same term is applied to Nabal. This was Abigail's first husband. Abigail is listed here as one of the wives of David. Her first husband was named Nabal. His servants used the term because of his unwillingness to listen to anybody about anything. He is such a son of Belial that a man cannot speak to him, his servants said. The term is only used once in the New Testament. (coughs) It's in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 15 where Paul writes, What concord or what agreement hath Christ with Belial. It's a term, therefore, that refers to those who know not God, they're hard-hearted, and they're at the end of the day the children of the devil. In the narrative we've read, the sons of Belial are the ones who felt that the others who were too faint to keep up with them in their pursuit of the Amalekites should not be included in the dividing up of what was gained in the battle, And if that's not bad enough, these sons of Belial suggest further that the ones who stayed by the stuff should be sent away. Give them their wives and their children that they may lead them away and depart, they suggest in verse 22. When David says to these wicked men in verse 24, who will hearken unto you in this matter? He's drawing a line in the sand, as it were, and he's saying, in effect, that all those who see God's hand in the victory will give no heed to the suggestion the sons of Belial were putting forth. We've seen what David's precept supposes or presupposes. We would do well to think for a moment on what is presupposed by the sons of Belial. They are presupposing that they gained the victory in their own strength and by their own power and with the use of their own wisdom and determination. They're also presupposing that the service rendered by the weaker brethren was of no value. They evidently had already forgotten what happened at Ziklag when their possessions were left unguarded. And so we note their pride In their sense of self-sufficiency, we may note also their divisiveness. They would send the weaker brethren away. I think we could summarize their selfish and arrogant manners by their words in verse 22, where you can lift out this phrase that says simply, We will not give. This becomes the dividing line then between the children of God and the sons of Belial. The people of God will give what they've gained. The sons of Belial will not. I wonder this morning what distinguishes you then as a Christian? What keeps you from bearing any appearance as a son of Belial? It is simply this. You give. The devil's children do not. I wonder as we close this meeting this morning, how then do you identify yourself? Are you a Christian? Or are you a child of Belial? Could it be that you profess to be a Christian, but you seem at times to resemble a son of Belial? It won't do to say simply, I'm a Christian, I guess I better give more. I better put more money in the offering plate. I better give more time to church. I don't feel like doing any of those things, but if I don't, I might appear to be a son of Belial. The only thing you'll accomplish by that line of reasoning is that you may cover up your appearance as a son of Belial but you'll only amount to being a disguised child of Belial. You would do better by far to gain a right view of God and of Christ. God freely gave his son. Christ willingly and desirously gave himself for our salvation If you know where you were headed and what Christ has done to redeem you, then you'll have no problem saying to God, O Lord, thou hast paid such a high price to rescue such a poor, vile, guilty sinner as me. I owe you everything. I humbly and gratefully give myself to thee to serve thee in any way that thou wilt equip me for. When you are able with Paul to exclaim Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift You'll not see the precept of our text as an unbearable yoke to bear You'll see it rather as an opportunity An opportunity to serve Christ An opportunity to serve the people of Christ an opportunity to express your gratitude to Christ. Oh, may the Lord so fill your hearts with Christ then that you find a power within you that compels you to share what you have. That's the Davidic precept. Share what you have. Let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for that unspeakable gift, the gift of Christ. O oh Lord, we pray that thou wilt conform us more to his image so that we are characterized as those that are givers especially givers of the spiritual benefits that we've gained from thee. Equip us, O Lord, help us not to be someone that we're not, but help us instead to be the best versions of ourselves that we can be in our service to thee. And we'll give thee the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.